You know, I got to tell you, I knew this passage was coming, of course, um, and to, to contemplate preaching on the transfiguration is a bit overwhelming. This is a hugely popular passage. If you've grown up in the church, I know you've heard about this story time and time again, maybe way back in Sunday school, you remember this passage. It's, it, it's, unde- it's indescribable. It really is indescribable what happens. But I had this question as I was going into the passage, what's it all about? You know, this happened just recently, and I've already talked about it, but I'm going to share it, share it again. Every summer, our family goes to a, a fish, Christian family camp that we thoroughly enjoy as a family. It's a time of, of refreshing for us. It's a time of bonding, and we enjoy We look forward to it every single year. You know, they, they, at the end of the week, they give you a little DVD that they put together as they had people running around taking footage, and, and my kids will watch those DVDs throughout the year, anticipating the next time we go. But there's a part of the trip that nobody likes. Well, I like it, kind of. And that's the driving. See, it takes several hours to get there. And as we're traveling, particularly from the younger two kids, we get questions like this. Are we there yet? When are we going to get there? How much longer? And then my favorite one. Where are we? Because a lot of times that question gets asked when we're in the interstate between towns. I don't know where we are. We're in the middle of nowhere, technically. And if you're a parent, you're very familiar with questions like those. And of course, we try to answer them as graciously as we can. That grace wanes as the trip goes on. But one of the things that we try to communicate over and over and over again is that it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. Once we get there, fun ensues, and nobody's thinking about the driving time. It was worth it, and everyone's excited. Beloved, that's the point of our passage today. That's the point of the transfiguration. Heaven is worth the suffering on earth. Now, I didn't intend to rhyme. That just kind of came out this week as I was putting this together. But heaven is worth the suffering on earth. Paul put it this way in Romans 8. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Heaven is worth the suffering on earth. Are we there yet? No. We're not there yet. But heaven is coming. Jesus, throughout our series in Mark, has been talking about the kingdom of God. He's been proclaiming it. And it's not yet here, but it's coming. One day in all of its fullness, it will come. And people of God, it'll be worth the wait. Have you ever been, have you ever had a, had a situation where you're anticipating something, maybe an event or a movie? And you think about it so much and you build it up so much in your mind that when you finally get to experience it, it's kind of flat. Heaven's not going to be like that. You can imagine heaven from now until the day you get there. And I promise you, you will not step into glory and think, oh, I thought it'd be better than this. I promise you, that won't happen. Heaven is worth the suffering on earth. Now, last week, you may remember, 
We talked about the plan. The plan was not what the disciples had anticipated. They were expecting Jesus to set up the kingdom, but then he told them he's going to suffer and die. And then last week, you also remember, I teased you a bit. I teased you with Mark 9, 1, which reads this, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it comes with power. And I raised some questions about that. I said, you know, he's talking to the crowd, and he's telling them that some of you are not going to taste death till you see the kingdom of God. But you see, this was 2,000 years ago, and every one of those people is now dead, and Jesus himself had said, I go to die, and the kingdom's not here. What's he talking about? That question is answered in our passage today. Last week, we saw the plan for the Messiah. This week, we'll see that that plan, the plan to suffer and die, is worth it. So join me again. I'm going to read just verse 2 of chapter 9. It says this, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Let me give you your first point from the text this morning. Heaven is worth the suffering on earth because it leads to the kingdom, because the kingdom is coming. Heaven is worth the suffering on earth because the kingdom is coming. Now, the first thing I want you to note is that phrase there at the top of verse 2, after six days. Now, that is very significant because as we've seen through our reading of the book of Mark, he typically does not include timestamps. As you read through Mark, he just moves from one event to the next. He says, this happened, then this happened, and immediately this happened. He doesn't generally use timestamps. So when you see that after six days, that's significant because verse 2 is connecting us to verse 1. It's telling us that verse 2 and what's following is about to unfold what Jesus said in verse 1. And here's what happened Next, Jesus has just said, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Verse two, I'm gonna read it again. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Jesus goes up this high mountain with Peter, James, and John. Now, these three, Peter, James, and John, they're what theologians refer to as the inner circle. Yes, Jesus had the 12, and then you think of the crowds, but then Jesus had this, what we call the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, who experienced things the other disciples did not. You may remember, we've already seen in our study in Mark, that it was Peter, James, and John who went with Jesus to bring the 12-year-old girl back to life. You may remember that from Mark chapter 5. Also, when Jesus goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes a little further off than the 12, taking with him Peter, James, and John. They accompany him in ways the others did not. Now, what is interesting here 
is that they go up a mountain. We're not given the name of the mountain. There's some speculation on which mountain it was, but we're not given a name. But what is significant is that mountains in the Bible are places where revelation happens. Moses went up Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments. Elijah goes up Mount Horeb and receives a message from God. Jesus goes up this mountain and something amazing is about to happen. Look at the rest of verse two and verse three. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Jesus is transfigured. The Greek word there is metamorpho. You can hear the word metamorphosis in that word and it means to change in a manner visible to others. To change in a manner visible to others. It's only used four times in the New Testament. It's used here. It's used in Matthew 17, which is describing the same event, the transfiguration. And then it's used in Romans 12, 2, talking about our minds to be transformed. And in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, which also describes our transformation into the image of Christ. See, we are called to be transfigured inwardly. We are called to change in a manner visible to others. Now, our point here in Mark 9 is that Jesus was changed. And notice, what does Mark describe? Not his face, not his hands, not his hair, his clothes. His clothes. Just stop and think about that. Why his clothes? You know, Matthew actually gives us a glimpse into his face. Matthew says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. But here, all Mark gets to are his clothes. And this kind of reminds me of Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah the prophet is brought into the throne room of heaven. And he says this. You can read it on screen. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah is standing before God. He is standing before God Almighty. He is confronted with the glory of the Lord, and all he can articulate to his readers is the train of God's robe. How many of you wonder, well, what did the Lord look like? But all we get from Isaiah 6 is the train of his robe. Here in Mark 9, all we get are his clothes. Why? Because the sight must have been too awesome to record anything else. Jesus' clothes shine bright, brighter than being bleached. You know, I studied this this week, and it was interesting. Back in the first century, they had a whole process for cleaning and bleaching and even softening clothing. They could get stains out of white garments with some chemicals and things that they used. And honestly, the whole thing was fascinating. They didn't have Tide. Think about it. The whole process was fascinating, but that's not the point. The point is, no matter how hard people could have bleached back then, nobody could have got it to the point where Jesus' clothes were just whiter than white. In fact, the text tells us they were radiant. Now, why? Let's come back to this question I raised at the beginning. What is the point of the transfiguration? Why did Jesus do this? 
You know, Jesus never did anything on a whim. He never did it just because. He never turned to his disciples and said, hey guys, watch this. He never did that. Everything that he did, he did with a purpose. He had come to do something. Now, remember, just a few verses earlier, actually a week ago in the text, Jesus had told his disciples that he's going to die, and that threw the disciples for a loop. So they're asking this question in their minds, why follow Jesus if he's just going to suffer and die? They're still trying to figure this out. They're trying to wrap their minds around what he told them, that he's going to Jerusalem and die. What's the point? So by taking Peter, James, and John up the mountain, Jesus is showing them the point. He's showing them the transfiguration is meant to show them a glimmer, a glimpse of his glory, a glimpse of his kingdom. It's almost like Jesus is saying, here's the point. This is why the plan, this is why follow the plan. And this fulfills exactly what he said in Mark 9.1. He said, I tell you, some are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Peter, James, and John saw a glimpse of the kingdom of God. And the purpose was the plan to suffer and die is worth it because it leads to this. It leads to what you see. It leads to my glory. It leads to my kingdom. So suffering precedes the kingdom. That's why the transfiguration. Jesus was transfigured before, transfigured before them to show them that the plan is worth it. It's worth it. But it wasn't that just that Jesus was transfigured. There was another surprise waiting for Peter, James, and John. Look at verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Jesus turns shiny, and then Elijah and Moses show up. These are two famous men from the Old Testament for different reasons. Moses, of course, is the great leader of the Israelites who went to Egypt. He faced off with Pharaoh he eventually brought the Israelites out of Egypt. It was Moses, by the way, who spoke to God face to face as one speaks to his friend. It was Moses who went up and received the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments. It was Moses who wrote the first five books of the law, the Pentateuch, which Peter, James, and John would have been very familiar with. But there's Elijah there too. Now, Elijah, of course, he was the great prophet who did wonders in Israel, especially during a dark time in Israel's history. It was Elijah who faced off with the 400 prophets of Baal, calling down fire from heaven, consuming the altar. It was Elijah who, on foot, outran King Ahab's chariot. It was Elijah who was taken up in a chariot of fire into heaven, leaving his protege Elisha behind. Crazy stories surrounded these two men. And we have to ask, why Elijah and Moses? Of all the Old Testament heroes, why Elijah and Moses? Moses wrote the law of God that Israel was supposed to follow and maintain their standing before him. Elijah was this great prophet who performed great signs and wonders, who, by the way, no other prophet performed. You could argue Elisha, of course. But why these two? What's being pictured here on the mountain? This is what's being pictured here on the mountain. What we're seeing represented here is the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. 
In other words, the Old Testament. The writings of the Old Testament. The law and the prophets. And what do the law and the prophets point to? Jesus. Right here on the Mount of Transfiguration, we have a beautiful picture of the law and the prophets revealing the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The scripture tells us they were talking with Jesus. The Gospel of Luke actually gives us a tiny snapshot into their conversation. It says that they were talking about Jesus' departure. In other words, him going to the cross. That's the, that was their conversation. And can you just imagine that? Just try to wrap your mind around Jesus is standing. He's illuminated by his glory. He's speaking to these two biblical heroes, Moses and Elijah. And I, I can't fathom what that must have looked like, what that must have felt like to hear their conversation. I mean, are you kidding me? This would have been a major Charlie horse between the ears. Just, what's going on? And yet, poor Peter, he just can't keep quiet. I mean, if there was ever a time to shut your mouth and just be in awe, this was it. It would be like, going to the Grand Canyon and staring at its majestic beauty but taking that friend of yours that never shuts up and is talking your ear off while you're trying to enjoy something. That's Peter right here, poor Peter. Look at verse five. <clears throat> Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I kind of wonder if Moses leaned over to Elijah and said, really, Jesus chose this guy? But no. Now, what is Peter saying here? Verse 6 tells us part of the motivation was that he didn't know what to say because they were terrified. Yeah, no kidding. But what's behind Peter's words? What's he getting at? Why did he talk about tents? Was this some sort of like servant-motivated thing? Hey, let's serve you guys. Let's make some tents because you live in heaven and you need an earthly tent, obviously. No, that's not it. You see, the word tent there in the text is the same word for tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? The tabernacle was where the glory of God dwelt. See, in Peter's Jewish mind, in his upbringing, in his background, what is he thinking about? What do you do with the glory of God? You put it in a tabernacle. That's what you do with the glory of God, right? The glory of God needs a tabernacle. But there's another layer as to what's going on here. Peter is thinking... Let's set up the kingdom right here. Let's get some tabernacles and set up the kingdom. You know, Jesus has just told him and the others that he's going to die, but Peter didn't like that plan. So let's do this now that Jesus is transfigured. Now that Moses and Elijah are here, that's as unexpected. Let's set up some tabernacles. Let's usher in the kingdom. Let's just do this. But that's not the plan. So in the midst of all that's going on right there, something else happens you know, it's, it's funny, as if it wasn't enough that we have transfigured Jesus, we have Moses, and we have Elijah, now the Father shows up. This is quite a party. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Several times in the Old Testament, clouds represented the presence of God. You know, Mount Sinai was covered in a cloud. 
God led the Israelites through the wilderness by day in a cloud. The father's voice comes out of this cloud and he says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. We should be reminded of Jesus' baptism. Something very similar happened there. God speaking out of this cloud and why does he do it? Why does God show up and speak? Why does the father reverberate his voice? Because in my mind, it's deep and it's you know, causing the rocks to shake as he's talking. Why is it happening? The father here is once again confirming the son's identity like he did at Jesus' baptism, confirming the son's identity, this is my beloved son. But he's also instructing the disciples to listen. It's not time to set up tabernacles, Peter. It's not time to usher in the kingdom of God. It's time to listen to the son. He has the plan. And then verse eight. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Just as quickly and as marvelously as they showed up, they were gone. Moses and Elijah, the cloud. Jesus looked normal again. That glimpse into the kingdom was but for a moment. But it happened to show them that the plan is going to lead to glory. It's worth it. And that's why we should listen to the son. He's got the plan, and the plan is worth it because it leads to God's glory. It leads to the kingdom. Last week, we looked at the plan. And from the ears of a human being, the plan doesn't sound all that great. Jesus said he's going to go suffer and die. That's not a great way to start a movement. Jesus further said, if you want to be my disciples, guess what? You have to die. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. This plan doesn't sound all that great, but you see, Jesus is saying to his disciples, in effect, to us as well, the plan is worth it because those who follow the plan enter the kingdom. What you saw for a moment, you will experience for eternity when the kingdom comes, and the kingdom is coming. Jesus will return one day, and he will set up his kingdom here on earth, and for those who have embraced him by faith, they will enjoy the benefits of the kingdom for all eternity. Jesus is setting up a kingdom. What is this kingdom gonna look like? Well, it's gonna be a place where true justice reigns. There are gonna be no corrupt leaders in the kingdom. There will be no foolish policies in the kingdom. There will be no perversion of the legal system in the kingdom. There will be a just ruler who will oversee everything and execute perfect justice. But not only that, peace. Peace will envelop the kingdom. Peace will envelop the world as never before. A peace like you and I have never known. In fact, Isaiah 2.4 is talking about the coming kingdom, and he writes this. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Justice is coming. Peace is coming. It will cover the earth, but not only that, It gets better. The curse will be undone. The curse on creation will be undone. Isaiah 6, 11 reads, 
the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. You don't see those animals penned up together in a zoo. It's against nature. This is not planet Earth as you and I know it. The curse will be undone, and all of God's creation will act as it was originally meant to. My friends, the kingdom is coming. So church, keep going. Keep going. Everything that you are doing for the glory of God, no matter how difficult in life, it's worth it. No matter how trying life can be at times, and it is, it's worth it. Keep following your Savior because one day he's going to take away all the pain and the toil and he's going to give you a home of joy, peace, and justice with him forever. Do this. Do this for me. Do this for yourself. When you are tempted to despair, remind yourself of the coming kingdom. Write it out on a sticky note. Write out, the kingdom is coming, and put that on your bathroom mirror or wherever you need to see it to encourage you when life is tough because it's worth it. We face tough things. We face hard things. We will continue to face very hard things, but my friends, it's worth it. It's worth it. So it's worth it because the kingdom is coming. Secondly, heaven is worth the suffering on earth, so stay focused. So stay focused. Don't just keep going, but stay focused. Look at verse 9 with me. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And as we've seen before, Jesus tells them not to say anything about what just happened. We've seen that before, haven't we? Something happens, Jesus heals someone, and he tells them, don't tell anyone. Why? Because it's not time yet. It's not time for the world. It's not time for everyone to know the plan. It's not time yet. Jesus has a mission that he needs to accomplish, so he tells the disciples, keep quiet about this until I'm risen from the dead. Until I'm risen from the dead. Everybody see that? Now look at verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now, first of all, they obey. They keep the matter to themselves. And so many times, Jesus heals a person. He says, don't say anything. And what's the first thing they do? They go tell everyone. So kudos to Peter, James, and John. They obey the Lord here. And think about, just for a minute, how hard that would be. They just met two of their biblical heroes they could have so easily popped off to the other disciples and guess who we met? <laughs> Moses and Elijah. Yeah. But they didn't do that. They kept it to themselves. But then this phrase, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. He just told them. 
one week ago. He just told them he was going to go suffer, die, and rise again. And here they are, struggling to figure out what does this mean. This might be, by the way, one of the things the father was referring to when he said, listen to him. They weren't listening. They weren't focused. Jesus had told them the plan. They didn't like the plan. They just wanted Jesus to initiate the kingdom. Their minds are on kingdom, 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 kingdom. Let's bring the kingdom. They're not listening. They're not focused. And friends, the same thing happens to us. I feel like I'm kind of being hard on the disciples right now, but but I really should be hard on myself. The same thing happens to me. I lose focus. Don't let that happen to you. How do we maintain focus? Well, first of all, what are we supposed to be focused on? We're supposed to be focused on the mission of the church, which you've heard us say here before, we'll say it again, is to make disciples. Harvest Decatur exists to make mature disciples who worship, walk with, and work for Christ. That's our mission. That's Matthew 28. And we just talked about that. We had membership class last night. We just talked about that. And this is a good reminder. This is what we are about as a church. Stay focused on that. Stay focused on that as our mission. Don't get distracted from the mission. And it's so easy. It's so easy to get distracted because this life offers a lot of cool things. Don't get distracted, though. Don't get distracted with work and sports and money and fame and sex and food and hobbies and video games and a thousand other things. None of them are bad. Understand what I'm saying. None of them are bad. They're good things, but you see, when good things become ultimate things, you've gotten your focus off. And it's even worse than that because you've made those things into an idol. You've made those good things that God has given us into idols, and we've put them above our Savior. So don't get distracted Don't get distracted from the mission. Don't get distracted from loving and serving Jesus. Don't get distracted from the church. Don't get distracted from loving other people. Don't get distracted from making disciples. So I'll follow that up with this. How are you doing in that? First, let's start with us. Let's start personally. Start with me. How am I doing in my personal spiritual disciplines? Am I following the Lord? Am I into his word? Am I praying to my Savior? Are you staying focused on your personal spiritual disciplines? I'll ask the parents in the room, and I'm including myself in this, how is your discipleship making at home? Are you building into little disciples of Jesus Christ? Or are you distracted? I'll open it up to all of us. How is your discipleship making going in your neighborhood, at your office, with your extended family? Stay focused, my brothers, my sisters. Let's do the job that we're called to do because it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it because the kingdom is coming. 
It's worth it, so stay focused. Last point I'd like to make this morning. Heaven is worth the suffering on earth, and the scriptures confirm it. If we ever doubt that heaven is worth the suffering on earth, we go back to God's word. The scriptures confirm it. Look at verse 11. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now, at first glance, as you're kind of reading this story, you might seem to think the disciples are still distracted here. They're talking about Elijah all of a sudden. Why are they talking about Elijah? I mean, apart from the fact they just saw Elijah, so he's doubtless on their minds, what's going on here? Why bring this up? What's this Elijah must come first business? But actually, this is a good question. This actually shows us that they're thinking through what they know from the Old Testament. Because Malachi 4.5 prophesied Elijah's coming. It reads like this. You can read this on the screen. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. It was a promise that Elijah was going to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord, before the Messiah. It was a popular teaching among the scribes that Elijah was coming before the Messiah. And Elijah had a job to do. In fact, Malachi, the next verse, Malachi 4, 6, reads this. And he, this is Elijah, will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. See, it was prophesied that Elijah was going to come back. And by the time Malachi had written his letter, Elijah was long dead, or long taken up into heaven, I should say. So what is this all about? It was a prophecy that Elijah was going to come back, and he had a job to do. He was going to turn the hearts of fathers to children and the hearts of children to fathers. In other words, Elijah was supposed to come and call the people to repent. He was going to call the people to repent because the Messiah is coming. He was going to call the people to repent and restore their relationships with one another because the Messiah is coming. That was Elijah's job. And Peter, James, and John knew this. They knew their Bible. So as they're walking down and they realize, you know, Peter just a week or so ago just declared that Jesus was the Messiah, they're starting to try to put these pieces together. Wait a minute. Where's Elijah? Why didn't he show up? And Jesus deals with this in typical fashion. He says, Elijah does come. But you see, Jesus always answers with a question. He says, Elijah does come first to restore all people. And then he says, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? What's going on here? See, in this conversation between Jesus and the disciples, the disciples are effectively asking him, okay, wait, we know you're the Messiah, but how can you be the Messiah if Elijah hasn't come? And Jesus answers it saying, good question. How can I be the Messiah and not suffer and die? And he tells them, Elijah has come. And he also tells them, I am the Messiah. Let's put these pieces together. Jesus answers them specifically in verse 13. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Jesus says Elijah did come. He has come. How? 
It was John the Baptist. Reincarnated? No. John the Baptist prepared the way for the Messiah. John the Baptist called people to repent. John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist had a vibrant ministry. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He wasn't the man Elijah. He was a different man, but he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. How do we know that? Luke 1, 16 and 17, the angel comes to John the Baptist's father before John the Baptist is born. He says to Zechariah, you can see this on the screen, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That sounds just like Malachi 4. John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And what Jesus is telling the disciples is, and everyone missed it. He did his job. People came and they were baptized and they repented and relationships were restored, yes, but they didn't see who John the Baptist was. Instead, what did they do? They did to him whatever they pleased and that's a reference to Herod cutting his head off, which we studied a few months back. The point is, that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah fulfilling the scriptures. The scriptures can't be broken. Scripture speaks of this, and, it, and scripture also speaks, by the way, that the kingdom will not be ushered in until the Messiah suffers and dies, which is why Jesus brought that back into the conversation. The plan was laid out in the scriptures. It's all there. They missed it, but it's all there. Elijah came, John the Baptist. The Messiah came, Jesus. He suffered and died, just like the plan was written. What does that mean? It means that God has planned out everything from beginning to end, and so you and I can trust his word. What the Old Testament prophesied about Jesus came true. Yes, I know. There are prophecies in the Old Testament that have not yet come true. I understand that. But what the Old Testament prophesied about the coming Messiah came true. So my friends, what Jesus has prophesied about himself at the second coming will come true. There is more evidence to the reliability of God's word because of Jesus' conversation here with the disciples. God planned everything from the beginning and it all fell into place just like he said it would. So you and I, my friends, we can trust. We can trust that Jesus is who he said he is. We can trust that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, that he is God, that he is the Messiah, that he is our Savior, which means we can be saved from our sins as the Bible declares. And if you've ever thought that the Bible was just a random book of stories, think again. The Bible is one story. It's a story about creation, fall, restoration, redemption, and restoration. It's God's unfolding plan of winning back us. And it's worth it 
Scripture confirms that trusting God is worth it. The Old Testament was written hundreds of years before Christ, and yet Christ's life confirms what the Old Testament was written. There are prophecies about Christ that could not have been fulfilled unless Jesus was who he said he was. His birth, for example, born of a virgin. That's kind of hard. That's that's more than hard. That's impossible. And yet Christ fulfilled it. So if you're sitting here today and you have doubts about God's word, by the way, there's nothing wrong with doubts. Just research. Look into those doubts. But if you have doubts about what the Bible says, I'm here to tell you the Bible is trustworthy. And because the Bible is trustworthy, then the offer the Bible makes about salvation through Jesus Christ is trustworthy. And more than trustworthy, it's the only way of salvation. If you're sitting here today and you've never trusted in Jesus, then the Bible says, I'm here to tell you, that the Bible says that we're all sinners, all of us. There's not a perfect person. Jesus was the only perfect one. And the penalty for our sin is hell. If you die without Christ, you will spend eternity in hell without him. But the Bible also says that Jesus died in your place and that if you embrace him by faith, that means if you put your trust in him and what he did for you on the cross and the grave, you will be saved. And if you want to know more, please catch me after service and let's talk. But my beloved in Christ, what does this mean for us? This conversation that Jesus had with his disciples, well, it confirms to the disciples that scripture was fulfilled. So we, brothers and sisters, can continually trust the Bible. So when Jesus says, I am with you always, you can trust that. When the Bible says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, we can trust that promise. When the Bible says, he who began a good work in you will bring its completion at the day of Jesus Christ, we can trust that promise. And over and over and over and over again, the promises of God are laid out in his word and you can trust them. I don't always see it. I don't always feel it. I know. But you can trust the promises of God. Jesus believed the plan was worth it or he wouldn't have gone to the cross. The whole reason the transfiguration happened was to show the disciples that this seemingly crazy idea of suffering and dying is worth it. Jesus believed this to the point that he did not shrink back from the cross. He went with the soldiers. He stood before the Sanhedrin. He stood before Pilate. He received the slaps and the spits and the thorns and the whips and the nails and the spear. He received all of it and he didn't fight it. He didn't open his mouth in protest. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Why? Because he knew the cross was worth it. He knew the glory that was to come was worth it. Your Savior set for you and for me the ultimate example of laying down his life because he knew it was to come and it was worth it. And let's follow his example. John Newton was an Anglican cleric 
and a slavery abolitionist in the 1700s. And in one of his sermons, he tells a story that goes like this. You can actually read this on the screen. It says, suppose a man was going from New York to take, to going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we would think of him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile, my carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. Let me modernize this story for you. Let's say you were on your way to receive an inheritance far beyond your imagination and a mile before the place you were supposed to receive it, your car breaks down and you have to walk a mile and all you can think about is your stupid car when you're going to receive an inheritance where you could buy a hundred cars. What's the point? The point is this. Why would this man in our story care about his carriage when he's going to receive a great inheritance? Friend, you are going to inherit all of eternity with the Lord, your Savior. You're on the way. Why worry about the trials of this life? Now, I'm not here to trivialize anything because I know that we have been through horrible things. You have been through horrible things. I'm not trivializing it. They're bad. But compared to eternity, we're like that man in the story. We have comparatively one mile left to go. When you think about how long you have left here on earth, and none of us are guaranteed another day, but if you're guaranteed another 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 50 years, compare that to eternity, you've got one mile left. You have one mile to go till you step into the kingdom. We're almost there, and it's worth it. So stay focused. Don't fret, don't stress, don't be anxious because there's one mile left. Let's keep going. Pray with me. Father, all things are in your hands. Your plan has gone according to your will and it will continue to go exactly as you planned it. On the other side of this, heaven awaits. You await us forever and ever, and it's worth it. For us to stay on this path to follow your plan is worth it. Help us to know that. Help us to stay focused on the task you have set for us. Help us not to be distracted by the things of this world, but to be laser focused on the mission you've given us as your children. Lord, encourage us with the truths of your word. Keep us in your hands as we walk that last mile and enter into the glory with you. We pray this in the great and awesome name of Jesus. Amen.